My name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas State, and we're so glad that you are here this morning. If it's your first time here, um, if you would, uh, take a moment, fill out the Connect card that was inserted into your bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. We'd love to, uh, to get to know a little bit about you, and if at all possible, to know how we can be praying for you, know how we can get in touch with you, know how we can get you... Um, connected with what God is doing here in our church family. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 5, 38 through 48, Matthew 5, 38 through 48, Matthew 5, 38 through 48, and we are continuing our sermon series in Jesus's justly famous Sermon on the Mount. Before we get into it, let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, so in awe, so amazed that you hear us, that you invite us to come to you boldly with our needs, having washed us clean through the precious blood of Jesus. And so we come now as your children with open, empty hands, asking for gifts, Would you speak this morning? Would you act this morning through your word declared to save, to sanctify, to comfort, to relieve, to convict, and ultimately to conform us to the beauty of your matchless, beautiful Son? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> Elizabeth Elliot was born in Belgium on December 21, 1926. There she is, Elizabeth Elliot. And she didn't remain in Belgium long when she was only an infant. Her family moved to the United States where she grew up, spent the bulk of her life there, here. Um, As she got older and the time came for her to go to school, go to college, she had aspirations of being an overseas missionary. And so in order to increase her kind of talent and ability to be multilingual, she studied classical Greek at Wheaton College in order to better equip her for missionary life and translating the scriptures into other languages and so on and so forth. And it was at Wheaton where she met her future husband, Jim. Jim. And they didn't get married right away. They didn't get married there, um, though. They they actually, both as single people, uh, moved to Ecuador, different places in Ecuador, and served as missionaries in different parts of Ecuador for some time. But after several years serving there, they both came together in uh, Quito, Ecuador, and they were married. And they continued to serve as missionaries among the Quisha uh, tribe in Ecuador. How after, after some time there, uh, Jim began to set his sights on reaching an unreached tribe living nearby the Akas. Now, the Akas were 
a fierce and sometimes violent tribe. In fact, up to this point, there had been no known missionary encounters with the Akas that didn't end without the missionary being killed. But Jim and Elizabeth took very seriously this call from Jesus to bring the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue so that God would have a people for himself, a global family for himself that reflected his glory on the earth. And so Jim and Elizabeth, with others, started making steps to locate and meet the tribe. Perhaps you know this story from the book or the movie, The End of the Spear. But Jim, along with four others, attempted a, a friendly encounter with the tribe. And while everything, everything seemed to start off on the right foot, eventually some of the Akas took offense at something and they hurled their spears piercing the flesh of Jim and his four friends, killing them in the encounter. The story doesn't end there. Elizabeth, now widowed with their then 10-month-old daughter, stayed in Ecuador and continued to serve among the Quisha people. As providence would have it, eventually Elizabeth befriended two Aka women. And those two women taught Elizabeth the language of their tribe. And after learning the language of the tribe, Elizabeth began to befriend more in the tribe. And she began to befriend those who killed her husband. And eventually they became so friendly that she even earned a nickname, which translated means woodpecker, and I'm not quite sure why. And she began to talk with them about life and about Jesus and about Christianity and about repentance. And she actually began to help many in this tribe to trust in and follow Jesus. And when you hear a story like that, you just have to ask, what would cause a person to do such a thing? What would cause a person who experiences the brutal and seemingly senseless murder of their spouse while they're at home with their 10-month-old first child living in a land not their own, what would cause such a person to stay there and to befriend those who killed her husband? Not, not just not retaliate, not just not remain there inactive but bitter. What would cause a person to not respond with hatred. But not only that, what, what, instead of retaliation, instead of hatred, instead, instead she responded with love and friendship. She moved toward them. She responded by putting her own life and safety on the line in order to serve the very people who killed her husband and to share the gospel message with them. And not only the gospel message, but her very life with them. What would cause a person to do such a thing? Well, we're turning our attention to Matthew 5, 38 through 48 this morning as we continue in our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at Jesus practically explain and apply this theme of what we're calling whole person righteousness. Whole person righteousness that he set forth. This is this theme he set forth in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5. 
we've seen that this whole person righteousness is contrasted with what Jesus talks about in chapter 6 as the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. According to Jesus, their hypocrisy was one of their inner self not matching their external self. They sort of put on a show. They looked at God's law and its commands, like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, etc. And they sought to apply the law in ways that kind of left them in out in certain areas so that they only had to obey God's law in certain instances. And the reason that they were doing this is because they didn't love, honor, and obey God from their hearts. They simply wanted to merely conform to superficial outward standards of morality. This is why Jesus says of them in Matthew 15, 8, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He says something along the same lines in Matthew 23, 27. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. But in the Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus calls his people, this new covenant society that he's forming with his own blood and through his own spirit, to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. The church, he says, is a people who are to seek and manifest whole person righteousness, which is not a righteousness of greater measure or greater degree. It's a righteousness of a different kind altogether. It's a deeper righteousness, whole person righteousness. And he's communicating the same thought, the same idea here in verse 48. We're looking at this morning, he calls us, he says, to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And the word translated as perfect there doesn't necessarily mean what we typically think by the word perfect as, as Westerners when we hear the word perfect. We typically think of like sinlessness or flawlessness doesn't necessarily match up with the Jewish idea of perfection. The Jewish idea of perfection means something a little closer to being made whole, being made complete. That's what the word teleos means. Translated as perfect here means. That's why Jesus, using his last breath on the cross before he died, cried out in John 19.30, it is teleo. It means it's, it's complete, it is finished, it is whole. He's calling us to wholeness here, a sort of maturity that, 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 that comes from our inner person and our outward person matching, not merely seeking to conform to, to superficial moral standards, but actually loving, actually, actually seeking to honor God with all of our hearts, living before him in wholehearted devotion. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. He's calling us to wholeness. We're not to be hypocrites, to seek mere external righteousness while our hearts are far from God and His desire for us. We're to seek to live before Him with wholehearted devotion. We're to seek a righteousness that goes down deep into the very core of who we are in our hearts. So as Jesus says here, we don't just seek to abstain from committing murder. That's good. But we seek to remove the root of murder 
from our hearts. We seek to remove all malice and bitterness and hatred from our hearts. Likewise, we look at God's commander uh, a, a while ago to, to not commit adultery. And we don't just seek to abstain from committing adultery as believers, but we seek to remove the, the root of adultery from our hearts, which is lust, impersonal, and inordinate sexual desire. So on and so forth. And, and now we come to our text this morning. We see what the call to pursue whole person righteousness looks like in the face of our being wronged by those who hate us and wish to hurt us. So let's read Matthew 5, 38 through 48. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy, for these are the words of our Savior and King. You have heard that it was said... An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's look together at the instruction explained, explored, and applied. The instruction explained, explored, and applied. First, the instruction explained. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been taking one of Jesus's explanations at a time. He's been taking a particular command or instruction from the law of God, and he's been explaining its true meaning and application in the life of the New Covenant community. And uh, we've been taking them one by one and just simply walking through them. This morning, however, we're taking two of them because they are so closely connected in content and application. It would be needlessly repetitive to cover these in two Sundays. So, uh, But this morning, we'll take just one at a time. First, in verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, uh, similar to what we saw when we looked at Jesus' teaching about the commandments to not murder and to, co- to not commit adultery, this particular instruction is indeed found within the law of God, this exact phrase is actually found in Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19-21. And uh, this is a principle not just found in the the Mosaic law, uh, but it's found in many different religions. It's one found in many different nations for their laws, for their judicial practices. It's the principle of what's often called lex talionis. It's a Latin term. Um, but the principle is, is that which states that if someone commits a crime, they should be penalized in a way equal or similar to the crime they committed. They shouldn't be subjected to extreme forms of punishment. 
simply because the injured party or the judge has malicious intent toward them, um, nor should they simply skate by simply because maybe the judge in the, in the judicial context likes this person or because they have a prominent role in the community or something along those sorts. So, you know, a pretty cut and dry example would be this. If someone steals $500, they should give to the injured party $500. Uh, they shouldn't be executed. That would be extreme, Right? Uh, nor should they be fined $5. That would not be fair to the injured party. Neither of those would be just. And uh, we should recognize here that this instruction is, is actually good in a judicial setting, isn't it? Uh, like if you're a criminal or someone against whom a crime is committed, you want this to be the principle governing the judge in your court of law. And that's the setting in which this principle was to be followed under the Mosaic Covenant. You know, remember, in the Old Covenant, God's people were a geopolitical community. They had armies and courts and judges and court systems, and they had civil laws by which they were governed. And this was one such law which sought to make sure that their judges and their court systems held people accountable for their crimes, but also, on the other hand, didn't punish them for their crimes too harshly. That's good. But now what many of the religious teachers, the religious elite of Jesus' day were doing is that they were taking this particular piece of instruction from God's law and they were applying it not in a judicial setting, but in their own personal ethics and standards of morality. So they would practice it in this way. If you went to the market one day and uh, you started hearing some piece of just juicy, untrue gossip about yourself, And you started inquiring, where did this untrue rumor come from? Where did this originate? And you started asking around, and someone named uh, James Joseph was the one who who started this rumor about you. He's a a horrible guy. Um, And he was spreading this sort of nasty piece of untrue gossip about you. Well, what you do in return is you go start some nasty, untrue rumors about him. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Just getting even here. This is... This is just and right, right? But you see, that's not what the original instruction was even speaking about. That's not, it wasn't speaking about how to deal with interpersonal conflict. It was speaking about how the nation of Israel was to practice justice and dole out just judicial punishments in a court of law. In a judicial context, yes, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Right? The, 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 this principle restrains evil in society. It keeps judges from punishing people too harshly. But Jesus says here that that's not actually the way that we are to personally interact with our neighbors. And, and actually, the law bears this out. The Mosaic law bears this out. If you look at Leviticus 19.18, the law says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. In the same way here, Jesus says, don't seek revenge, don't retaliate, don't seek to get even, don't seek to harm your neighbor even when they harm you, don't resist the one who is evil, he says. The the word resist here means to like violently oppose. Do not set yourself against the one who wrongs you, rather love him or her as yourself. Do not retaliate. And likewise, Jesus goes on to take on the scribes and Pharisees misinterpretation of Leviticus 19.18. We just read it. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus addresses it, starting in verse 43. He says, 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So, love your neighbor. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That's, That's just straight up Bible, something most people in the world would actually admire and think of as noble and good. And the religious elite and religious teachers of Jesus' day were no different. They affirmed that one ought to love their neighbor as themselves. But then they sought to apply that in this really narrow and specific way and sort of excluded many people from that term neighbor there, from the definition of the term neighbor there. So they didn't just stop at you need to love your neighbor as yourself. They went on to say, you see, it, it tells you to love your neighbor maybe your fellow citizen of Israel. But it says nothing about loving your enemy. And they took that as permission even to hate your enemies. Even sometimes, as some groups of the day took it as a command to hate your enemies. You know, there's a a Jewish monastic community that actually had written in their documents that they were to love their neighbors, but hate the outsiders. They were to hate the outsiders. And that was a prevalent attitude of the day. Some of the well-known Jewish groups of the first century were were ardent nationalists. They hated Gentiles. They hated the Romans because they were occupying and ruling over the land of Israel. And they even hated, hated Jewish tax collectors because the tax collectors were collecting taxes for Rome, so they were seen as traitors, those who chose to side with Rome, betraying their very own people. And so Jesus addresses this as well, and he says, No, no, no. You're not just to love your fellow countrymen. You're not just to love those like you. You're to love those quite different from you. You're to love the pagans. You're to love the Gentiles. You're to love the Roman occupiers. You're to love your enemies. You're to love tax collectors. Why? Because you're to be like your heavenly father, he says. You're to be a a chip off the old block. You're to be the spitting image of your father. How does your father treat his enemies, Jesus says? Now, how how does he treat those who have rejected him and sinned against him or rebelled against him? This wonderful weather we've enjoyed this last week. Were the people of God the only ones who got to enjoy that? No, people who hate God and have rebelled against him got to enjoy this beautiful, excellent, wonderful, gorgeous weather this last week. The God who is in control of the weather and the sun and the warmth even allowed the most hardened of sinners to enjoy this weather in all of its gorgeousness. Well, you're to be like that, Jesus says. You're to be like your heavenly Father, Jesus says. He makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust. He makes refreshing rains fall on the righteous and sinners. Likewise, those who hate you and wrong you, your so-called enemies, you're to love them and to be kind to them and pray for them. If you don't, how are you actually any different from the tax collectors and the Gentiles? This is brilliant because he's using some of the people that actually come to mind for those in his audience, the people they hate, their enemies, Jewish tax collectors and Gentiles. And he says, you know, if, if you don't love your enemies and you're actually just like them, Everybody loves those who are like them. Everybody loves their brothers. Everybody greets those who are their friends. But we're to be different as the people of God. 
You're a child of God who loves his enemies. Therefore, you love your enemies. That's the instruction explained. Now let's explore it. This is a hard word, isn't it? It's one that could be easily misconstrued if if we didn't consider it within its proper context. In fact, this text has been used and abused for all sorts of things that it wasn't intended to be used for. It's similar to the way, you know, the religious elite of Jesus' day misused and abused God's instruction in the Mosaic Covenant. Many sects and and groups have misused and abused Jesus' words here. So in order to make sure we don't do that, let's, let's ask some questions. We might not be able to ask every question, but let's ask some questions might be coming to mind for some of us in the room. First, are, are, there, are there instances in which the use of force is legitimate? Are there instances in which the use of force is legitimate? You know, some have taken Jesus' words here and seen Jesus as making a complete prohibition of all uses of force or violence. Is that what he's doing here? And think about what that would mean if that was the case. And that would mean... Christians would be prohibited from serving in the military. That would mean that Christians would be prohibited from serving in law enforcement. It would mean that Christians would be prohibited from serving in the office of judge or prosecutor. Uh, that, that would mean that uh, you know, I've lived in the city for sev- the inner city for several years now, and I have come upon two situations in the last several years wherein a woman was being abused by a man. And I stepped in and intended to, if need be, to use force. Never came to that because they stopped when I interfered. But if I intended to use force, if it did go that far, would I have been wrong for doing so? These are, you know, these are questions we need to consider here. You know, are, 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 are there certain vocations off limits for Christians? Is it sinful to serve in the military? Is it sinful to serve in law enforcement? Is it wrong to use force in order to defend the weak or innocent? And certainly not. That is not what Jesus is saying here. In the instance of serving in the military or in law enforcement, the reality is that, that if you do, you will likely need to use force or violence at some point in time. You know, if a Christian is serving in the vocation of judge or criminal prosecutor, the reality is that you will need to fulfill your duty of exacting justice in that role. So, should, should they abide by this instruction of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? And again, we need to consider the original context for what uh, Jesus, or what the law applied that principle to is the judicial context, not a context of, of personal conduct. The Pharisees misapplied the instruction because they applied it to the wrong context. In a similar way, Christian groups that take Jesus' command or instruction here as a ban on, violent, uh, on, on all sorts, all forms of force, they seek to apply his instruction in the wrong context. We actually see elsewhere in the New Testament that, that governing authorities have divinely given permission And not just permission, but even a divinely given duty to carry out just retribution, to use uh, the use of violence and the use of force to protect their citizens when necessary. Look at Romans 13, 1 through 4. And Paul speaks about governing authorities as being divinely instituted by God. This is what he says. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. 
And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. See, those... When those in the military, when those in law enforcement, when those in a judicial setting use force and violence to protect citizens of their nation, they're actually carrying out their divinely ordained duty. God has given them the sword and not in vain. So if a Christian is serving in law enforcement, in the military, in the court system, and they carry out this use of violence or carry out just retribution for crimes committed, they're simply fulfilling their duty. Now, if that same Christian, in their personal conduct, began to use force and violence to retaliate against their enemies and to get revenge on those who have wronged them, then they would be directly disobeying Jesus' clear instruction here. But not so if they're simply fulfilling their vocational duty. Of course, that's not a blanket approval of all use of violence, force, or punishment doled out governing authorities. There have been times where governing authorities have misused the sword given to them by God. There have been unjust wars waged. There have been unjust punishment for crimes. There have been even punishment of the innocent. There have been abuses by law enforcement. In our nation's history, we've seen this. We've seen systemic police brutality against young black men and other minorities. We've seen our military involved in in wars that our nation had no business being in. We've seen unjust prosecution and miscarried justice. We've seen these things. Cannot approve of that. And perhaps there are times where if a Christian is serving in law enforcement in the military and in those types of settings in a court system, they'll need to participate in acts of civil disobedience or or not participate in, in, uh, in certain acts because they have an allegiance to a higher king the kingdom of God. But governing authorities do and must retain the right to use the sword given them by God to protect their citizens and to exact retribution when necessary. That is a time when use of violence and force is committed or is, is permitted. However, we don't have time to get into some of these other questions. We're running out of time. Uh, but ordinarily, there are instructions here for Christians. We are to not be filled with hatred and malice for an enemy. We're not to be seeking to violently retaliate against our enemies and those who wrong us. There may be times as as image bearers where we seek to protect and love and care for our fellow image bearers, and we need to use force in order to do that should try to de-escalate in, in any situation where we're able to. Ordinarily, we should rely on law enforcement to, to protect us. There may be times where force is necessary, but even so, we always seek to do so without malicious intent. We always seek to do so without being needlessly violent or aggressive. We're called to gentleness and meekness as God's people. We're called to love our enemies as God's people. We're called to forsake vengeance as God's people are called to live peaceably with all so far as it depends on us. How about this, though? Uh, Is this text calling disciples of Jesus to endure abuse? 
Okay, so unfortunately, there have been times when this text has been used or misused, I should say, by Christians to advise those experiencing some form of abuse, perhaps spousal abuse or child abuse or, or abuse in a religious setting, has been used in order to, to say that those who are victims of such abuse are to simply endure it. You know, some of the reason, look, Jesus says here to turn the other cheek when you're hit, Therefore, you should stay in your home, should stay in that church where you're being abused, not take legal action and simply endure abuse. Again, that's not what Jesus is saying here. There were times in Jesus' own life and ministry wherein he himself fled violent persecution. In John 10, 31 through 39, Jesus' teaching and what he's saying, as it often did, made the religious elite very angry. And actually picked up stones to stone him and sought to arrest him. And John 10, 39 says that Jesus escaped from their hands. He fled. There are times when a Christian will need to flee, to run away, to remove themselves from hostile situations, spousal abuse, child abuse. And other instances like these are moments where fleeing, running away, removing yourself from hostile situations are perfectly legitimate and advised. Furthermore, there are times when Christians should and ought to take legal action against abusers. First of all, as Christians in in, in a local church setting, if a member of our local church was to commit such acts, we would go through this, this process of spiritual discipline. If someone was physically, emotionally, spiritually abusing one of their spouse or children or whoever, They have sinned against God and man. They must be confronted and held accountable by the believing community. We should go through this church discipline process. Furthermore, if a crime has been committed, then we have a duty to report such crimes. Governing authorities, law enforcement, judicial processes are divinely ordained, and we ought to appeal to them when crimes like physical abuse, for example, are committed. In such an instance... To flee such abuse and to report such abuse to the authorities is not a violation of Jesus' instruction here. Now, if a Christian were to seek personal revenge in such an instance, if a Christian were filled with hatred and malice and bitterness, if they sought retaliatory violence, that would most certainly be a violation of Jesus' teaching here, his instruction here. Governing authorities carry the sword and not in vain. Governing authorities have been instituted by God to be a terror to evil conduct and to, t- to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. But the Christian individual in the institution of the local church has not been called to violence, not to revenge, not to retributive justice. Instead, we've been called to gentleness, to meekness, to nonviolence, to forgiveness. The kingdom of God does not come with violence but with meekness. The mission of God does not advance through the shedding of blood, but through our own blood being shed. And so in our personal conduct, instead of revenge, we forgive. We, instead of retributive justice, we turn the other cheek. Instead of using violence, we love and pray for those who wrong us. And that's the instruction explored. Now let's apply it. And thankfully, Jesus gives us some explicit practical application here. We may need to try to translate it in our current context some. And, and so how, how should we as Christians adhere to this instruction? How can we adhere to this instruction? First, Jesus says in verse 39, do not return violence with violence. 
And Jesus says that we are not to return violence with violence. He says in verse 39 that if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And this isn't just any ordinary old slap. Uh, if, if you're slapped on your right cheek, that would mean that you were backhanded with the slapper's right hand. And uh, a backhanded slap in the first century Jewish context would have, would have not just been physical assault, but it would have been an insult to your, your humanity and your dignity. Indeed, the, the rabbis taught that retribution for a backhanded slap was actually double than that of an open-handed slap. And in many Middle Eastern contexts, the same is true today. A backhanded slap is degrading, it's insulting, it's, it's shameful. And Jesus says that when that happens, Christians are to turn the other cheek, meaning we're to show the person that slaps us that we would rather receive more of their violent behavior and degradation than respond with violence in return. We're not to enter into tit-for-tat feuds like the Hatfields and McCoys, for all you Appalachian folks. We're not to return violence for violence. Martin Luther King Jr., he declared and displayed this beautifully in his life and ministry and his conduct. This is a man who was beaten by police. He was publicly ridiculed and called every name in the book, beat mercilessly with batons. He was arrested and jailed for peaceable activism. His house was bombed. Eventually, he was assassinated, and he once preached on this very text, and he said this. He said, hate begets hate. Violence begets violence. Toughness begets more toughness. We must meet the forces of hate with the power of love. Our aim must never be to defeat or humiliate the white man, but to win his friendship and understanding. Isn't that amazing? And that was how he personally conducted himself, even in the face of great hostility, even in the face of gross injustice and violence. He lived it even when it cost him. He loved even when he was hated. He was gentle even when violently wronged because he knew, as he once said, that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only light and love can do that. And so Jesus calls us to not return violence with violence. And next, in verse 40, we adhere to this instruction by giving, our sh- giving the shirt off our backs. And we'll go really quickly through this one since we are still running out of time. It says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So the, the, obviously the setting here, someone who is suing a disciple of Jesus, maybe a disciple of Jesus, was in their debt. And this person, in order to make things right, sought to sue the disciple of Jesus. And the disciple of Jesus, even before they got to court, was to give them their cloak and their, their shirt, the shirt off their back, in order to make things right and to earn the respect of their opponent. Jesus' disciple was to seek to make things right, not to get in a tit-for-tat feud, but to exude generosity toward their opponents and to go above and beyond to make things right. Verse 41 says, to go the extra mile. It's likely where that phrase comes from, to go the extra mile. It comes from verse 41. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So in the first century, citizens of of those nations occupied by the Roman Empire were legally obligated to help Roman soldiers in certain ways when Roman soldiers required them to. So think of Simon of Cyrene 
in uh, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 32, the, the Roman soldiers in Matthew 27 are, are forcing Jesus to carry his cross, but because he's been so brutally beaten and flogged by Roman soldiers, he's too weak to carry his cross. And so the Roman soldiers in Matthew 27, 32, it says, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled the man to carry his cross. So they did that in certain situations. Like if you were walking down the street, while some Roman soldiers were walking through your town and one of them was tired of carrying their bag. You could say, hey you, I want you to carry my bag for me. And you had to do so. You were legally obligated to do so to carry it for one mile. And this would have infuriated your average first century Jew. Remember, they hated the Romans. They hated their occupiers. They hated these Gentiles. They hated living under Roman occupation. They would have carried the bag because they were legally obligated to, but, but they would have hated it and resented it and resented the soldier for making them do so. But Jesus says that, that his disciples, not to resent or hate those forcing them into such humiliating service, for that coworker or that fellow student who lays the bulk of the work for that project on you, for that neighbor who increased your yard work this last summer, because they didn't take care of their yard or they dumped their lawn waste on your property. For you city dwellers, those people that get really, really sensitive about their on-street parking in front of their house, even if you have to park up the street, Jesus is saying, go the extra mile. Don't resent them. Don't, don't harbor or nurse bitterness in your heart toward them. Instead of compassion and a humble desire to serve, don't just do the one mile. Go the extra mile. Don't resist them. Don't oppose them. Don't hate them. Rather, love them as yourself and humbly serve them. Next, in verse 42, Jesus says that we're to be generous to our enemies when they're in need. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, of course, this is not a command to give money to anyone at any time indiscriminately whenever you're asked to do so. There are times where that's not the best thing to do. You know, Paul instructs the church in Thessalonica, a local church, wherein some of the members were living lazy lifestyles, refusing to work and relying on the generosity of their fellow church members. And Paul says that that church should not do that. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that if anyone is not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. Similarly, if someone is struggling in the throes of addiction, it's probably best for you not to give them money indiscriminately. In those cases, it would be better to buy someone a meal, maybe that give you a chance to sit down and talk with them, maybe pay for a bus pass, something of the sort. So it's not a call to give money away indiscriminately. With that said, though, it is calling us to be generous and to give to our enemies when they're in need, to seek to relieve their suffering when it's in our ability to do so. When our enemies meet with adversity, we should not see that as an opportunity to rub salt in their wounds or to kick them when they're down. Instead, we're to express generosity and love when people face tragedy, raising or putting up one of those, uh, those campaigns to raise money for them, to help meet their needs, to help relieve their suffering however we're able. Verse 47, this is an awkward one. Greet your enemies when you see them. That is awkward. He says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You know, Dayton is a small town, and if you live anywhere long enough, you're bound to collect so-called enemies at some point. 
you're bound to collect at least one, maybe a few. Because Dayton is such a small town, you're also at some point in time probably going to run into them. The grocery store, the coffee shop, at the restaurant, at the mall, at the park, wherever. What do you do when you see them? What do you do? Well, Jesus says that we are to greet them. We're not to pretend as if they don't exist. We're not to pretend as if we don't see them. Part of loving your enemies, Jesus says here, is to greet them. And interestingly, in, a, in this context in which Jesus is teaching, it's also, you're, that also includes wishing peace upon the person you're greeting. When they greeted someone, they didn't just say hello. They said, peace be upon you, shalom be upon you. It was, a, it was basically a prayer for this person that you're greeting to flourish and thrive in life. Because of this, there's often debate, a debate in first century Jewish world about whether or not a Jew should greet a Gentile because they didn't know if they should be wishing shalom upon the Gentiles. And Jesus here says, yes, upon your enemies, upon these foreigners, upon those who hate you, upon everyone you know, you should greet and pronounce peace over them. In verse 44, along those same lines, in verse 44, Jesus says, we have to pray for our enemies. And this is an important one because, let's be honest, this is hard. This is really hard. Perhaps we're going through this this instruction here, particular people are coming to your mind. Particular family member, a co-worker, a neighbor, an ex-friend, someone from school, whoever it is, and you're just thinking, I don't know if I can do this. This person has done horrendous things, unspeakable things to me or to my family. They've said horrible things. They've treated me in such horrible ways. I'm just not sure that I have it in me to love them, to greet them, to wish peace upon them, to help them when they're in need. I don't know if I can do that. Even if you're not there yet, here's a really good place to start. Pray for them. You know, Bonhoeffer said this really great line in this book, Life Together. He said, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. If you pray for an enemy, I think you'll find inevitably your heart softening toward them. I think you'll find that God will impart to you his heart for such a person and his powerful love even for his own enemies. I think you'll grow in a desire to care for and be generous to such a person. I think you'll find yourself even wishing peace upon them and even desiring to be a means of that peace being actualized and accomplished in their lives. So pray for your enemies and those who wrong you and persecute you. And lastly, we say this, just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, that's actually the only way you'll find the strength, the resolve, the motivation to love not just your neighbors, not just your friends, not just those who are kind to you, not just those who are like you, but also love your enemies, those who wrong you, those who would slap you and sue you and force you into servile acts. The only way that you'll be able to love them and be generous to them and to seek their peace, their flourishing, their thriving in life is if you realize that that is precisely what Christ did for you when you were his enemy. 
We sang about this earlier. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, we say in the welcome every single week, a welcome from Jesus Christ who is the ally of his enemies. That's what you were. He was unjustly arrested and he went peaceably. He was falsely accused in that kangaroo court and he stayed silent. He was slapped by the high priest, but he turned the other cheek. He was mocked and flogged by Roman soldiers. He endured when the nails were driven through his hands and his feet. He complied when that crown of thorns was pressed into his skull. He did not resist. He hung there on the cross, asphyxiating, bleeding, dying, and he didn't curse or insult or mock or revile in return. Instead, he blessed and prayed for those killing him, saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Instead, he prayed for his enemies and those who cursed them. And he did that for you. He did that, Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and don't soften that word sinner. Okay, Being a sinner doesn't mean I've made a few mistakes in my life. Being a sinner means I am a rebel. I've rejected God and rebelled against him. I am his enemy and I hate him. That's what being a sinner means. That's what you were. And while you were still that, while you were still God's enemies, while you were still rebels, while you were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what will give you. He died for us to make us so that we weren't his enemies any longer, but his friends to seat us at his table. That's the only thing that can give you the power and motivation to love your enemies and persecutors when you recognize that you were God's enemy, but by his great love and the manifestation of his love, the cross reconciled you and made you his friend. That's why Bonhoeffer also once said, the Christian must treat his enemy as a brother and requit his hostility with love. His behavior must be determined not by the way others treat him. That's not what determines your behavior but by the treatment he himself receives from Jesus. It has only one source, and that is the will of Jesus. So back to our question, what caused Elizabeth Elliot to love and befriend those who killed her husband? What caused Elizabeth Elliot to not seek revenge, not carry and nurse bitterness in her heart? What caused her to seek out the Akas and to serve them and to share the gospel with them and not only share the gospel with them, but her very life with them? It comes back to the cross and who she understood her God to be. You know, later in life, she would go on to, to host a radio show and on this radio show, she would open up with the same exact line every single time. She would say, you are loved with an everlasting love. You are loved with an everlasting love. You are loved with an everlasting love. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot. She knew that she was loved, that those Akas were loved, 
with an everlasting love. Even when she hated God, she knew. When she was a sinner, a rebel, even when she was God's enemy, she was loved with an everlasting love. She was saved through the perfect manifestation of God's everlasting love, the cross. What might happen in your life if you realize that you are loved with that everlasting love? What might happen in your life if you behold the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ? What if you knew that you were so gripped and held safe and sound in his everlasting love? What might happen if you realize that you were loved by God even when you were unlovely, even when you were his enemy? What kind of risks might you take? What kind of unloving, unlovely, and seemingly unlovable people might you love? Who might you forgive? Who might you pray for? Who might you seek peace for? Friends, you are loved with an everlasting love. That is life-changing. It was life-changing for Elizabeth Elliot, and it's life-changing for us. May it be so for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for that everlasting love, that never giving up, never breaking, always and forever love that you have displayed for us in the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you help us to to realize it this morning? Would you let the coin drop in our hearts this morning? And to behold, as we look at this bread and this wine, to behold not just an ordinary loaf, not just an ordinary cup, but behold the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and realize that this is a display of your infinite love. And through that, would you so empower us this week to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to greet those who hate us and wish us harm, to do good to all, to seek to to live at peace with all so far as it depends on us. Empower us this for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those that we come in contact with this week. In Jesus' name, amen.